Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Now, when it comes to inspiration, sometimes we all need a little bit of help. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know I'm a passionate advocate for mentorship. In the first quarter this year, I've mentored 76 different people, but I've come to realize that I just don't scale. Because of this, I have teamed up with a buddy to help more mentors and mentees find each other. If you want to find out more, check out onenightinproduct.com slash mentor, where you can sign up to be a mentor, a mentee, or both. That's onenightinproduct.com slash mentor. On tonight's episode, we talk about creating a Wizard of Oz startup to prove product market fit and using the insights you gain along the way to inform your very own yellow brick roadmap. We talk collaborative product discovery, making sure we take all of our stakeholders along for the ride and whether we need to expand the classic product trio. We also consider life-centered design, making more ethical product decisions which consider the impact on everyone and what to do when our customers couldn't care less how ethical we are, but we want to be better anyway. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Products. So my guest tonight is Sophia Herfling. Sophia is an entrepreneur, product leader, former basketball player and keen skier. I'll try not to hold that last part against her. Sophia started out as an early metaverse pioneer scanning hotels and museums for a VR startup before heading into a variety of product roles, most recently head of product for Babbel before getting bored of working for someone else and starting her own company instead. Sophia is passionate about life-centered design, considering the holistic impact of our product decisions and also wants to make sure that we're not just doing product discovery, but doing it collaboratively. Hi Sophia, how are you tonight? <laughs> hey Jason, uh, I'm doing great, thank you. Well, it's good to have you here. Right, so first things first, you are the co-founder and head of product at Zyga. Yes. So what problem or problems does Zyga solve for me? So Zyga is an early stage startup from Berlin and we're developing a personal digital assistant that takes up all kind of private life admin work for people. So booking doctor's appointments, applying for parental benefits, buying train tickets, but next family vacation, reserving restaurants, this list goes on and on. We believe that people spend way too much time on these things, time they could rather spend with their family, with their friends or following their hobbies. And what is probably even worse is that managing and doing all of this life admin work creates a lot of mental stress and sometimes even anxiety. People are afraid of missing the deadline for applying for something. They feel stupid because they often don't really know how to do <laughs> something, you know, like Texas in Germany. It's incredibly complex. People procrastinate uh, life admin work and then feel even worse about it. Or a lot of people like first-time parents or expats in a foreign country, they often don't even know what there is to do. And yeah, by building this personal digital assistant that supports you with all of that. We hope that we ease that pain and give back a little bit of time, but also, yeah, more mental space to people. But you touched on it there just a little, and it was something I thought when you were talking about this kind of magic box that sorts out all your problems, is that people have lots of different types of problems, and they can have lots of different types of tasks, and you've got to presumably build something to do all of those different things, and it sounds like there's potentially some almost like like you, you can't just have one thing that does them all, right? You have to start building and customizing things to do different types of tasks. So is that kind of tricky to prioritize what types of tasks you can actually help people with? Or is it a fairly easy thing for you to kind of just rack these up? 
No, it it is difficult. We, yeah, we're building this horizontal product. We at at the beginning when we set out, we were like, okay, should we start with kind of one vertical and do that really well, or do we directly go horizontal? And then we figured out it's probably better to start out horizontally because people have all these different things. Everyone is different, and it's not about just doing certain aspects, but also keeping track of all of that. So yeah, we we set out to go broad right from the beginning. And what we're doing right now is eventually we want to automate uh, many of these things, but that's obviously impossible to um, to do right <laughs> from the start. So right now we have this product, which is basically an app that you can use to delegate work to us. And then we have a team of personal assistants uh, sitting there in the background and doing things for you. Uh, behind the curtain. <laughs> exactly. It's this kind of wizard of us kind of product at the moment and at the moment we're still in this phase where we're also yeah asking people to just hand in everything they have so we really learn what are the things that come up most frequently and then uh -huh. by kind of getting a better idea we realize okay this is probably something we should get into in terms of automating things but i'm just thinking actually you've obviously you've set this up in germany which is a country which has lots of very strict privacy laws maybe above and beyond the gdpr laws themselves like i used to work for a german company and we were very hot on all things privacy and personal data related is it tough to get people to hand that data over to you because presumably they need to hand you some fairly personal details and maybe even social security numbers and things like that to actually get some of this stuff done like has that been easy to get people to do yeah that's a great question that was one of the big worries we had at the beginning that people would not hand anything in and now we're super surprised that people hand in everything <laughs> it feels like okay as long as it solves a problem people are super open they share a lot of data with us they share very private things that i was super surprised about with us but i think we have to keep in mind that these are also early adopters so we yeah. we have only 40 customers right now most of them kind of work in the product world themselves. They're kind of really excited about this product. So I think the more we go mainstream, the more we will have to deal with this issue. And obviously, we're trying to kind of build yeah, a, a product that really secures your data in the best way right from the start. Yeah, and there's always a pivot at some point to start some kind of identity theft type organization if you really want to, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But you've talked about then your 40 customers, which obviously means you're still very much at that point where you can kind of do some of that Wizard of Oz stuff. Yeah. And I guess the question that you're presumably asking yourself, as, and I'm going to ask you as well, is like, is there going to be a tipping point? Uh, do you already have that in your mind, like the tipping point where you can't do everything manually anymore and that you have to have that automation? Or are you basically just seeing how it goes? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. We believe that currently we're building a lot of structures to make sure that our assistance, like the manual work, becomes more and more efficient. And by that, I guess we will already kind of get to a point where it feels like, okay, if you have to, I don't know, um, apply or get a new driver's license, if you do it yourself, it probably takes you half an hour to figure out what you need to do yeah, kind of scroll through all this government pages to get the right information. <laughs> Once we've done that one time and kind of noted down the process, it probably only takes us five to seven minutes or so. So there is some efficiency gain already through, let's say, operational excellence. 
But yeah, I think this will only become a scalable product if we automate some things in the background. So our objective actually is that by the end of this year, we will have automated quite a lot of things in the background, but we're also working towards a tool that helps you a little bit more help yourself and you find kind of right. all kind of journeys and information curated um, about how to do live admin. You can save all kinds of documents and information um, in our app. So it turns more to a product and not simply a service with kind of an interface uh, in front <laughs> of it. <laughs> Uh, that's fair enough. And obviously, it'd be interesting to see when you do get to that tipping point and what decisions you have to make at the time. But before you did this, you had experience in a number of areas. You were you know, working in product management. You were working in interaction design. You had a stint in customer experience, business development. So you've got quite a broad set of roles in your background and broad areas of experience. So did that make then moving into entrepreneurship and founding your own company quite a natural, easy step for you? Or was it kind of a, a struggle moving from maybe more of a structured company with product management practices in place and having to do it all yourself basically yeah i think my background yeah where i held uh, various different roles helped me a lot in yeah and now kind of getting into co-founding my own company i mean i also i i wasn't part of founding zyga right from the beginning i joined as a late co-founder when we kind of pivoted and started out something new uh, hostile takeover <laughs> exactly no I, it definitely helped a lot that um, I in my very first job I joined a startup we were kind of eight people still sitting in the university so I was there when we basically had to figure out everything pricing what exactly is the product we're offering what are the kind of use cases where we get kind of the technology that was developed as part of a PhD project how do we get it out so that helped a lot. And yeah, I think now it, it still is a struggle. I worked for Bubble before, like an 800 people company before. We had all this tooling, all these kind of uh, specialized roles. And then you kind of basically get back to zero. Um, <laughs> and it's like <laughs> as, as a product person, you're suddenly a data analyst. You're a customer support person. You have to do all user research yourself, right? the copy for the product so it is a different thing but yeah I, I guess it is what what i enjoy more than kind of working in these established companies where everything is already in place i think it, it always excites me if they're um if you build something on the green field so how many people have you got in the company right now um we are around 30 people i think ah, so you're getting there you're getting yeah. there you'll have your 800 <laughs> people and all your processes soon what's yeah. the space <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, so actually one thing I did notice when I was Googling Zyger to do a bit of background research is that apparently Zyger is also the name of the world's weirdest antelope. <laughs> and I wondered if there was any special meaning behind the choice behind that name or you know, if the antelope thing came into it or if it like, means something else in German. Like, what's the story behind the name? <laughs> That's a good question. And actually, we don't yet have a good story around it. I think my, uh, our CEO and co-founder he decided for that name because he felt it sounded good. And yeah, there was a free domain for it. <laughs> and it is kind <laughs> of oh, the this, classic consideration. Uh, yeah. And it sounds like, yeah, no one really knows this animal. So we were like, okay, we're, we're going to head for that. But we're, we're starting a rebrand project in a week from now with an agency here in Berlin. And we already told them like, 
we need a story for that <laughs> at the moment we, we always ask by all of our customers and don't really have a story so we still need to beat that retrospectively <laughs> there you go yeah you can get loads of antelope origin stories in there <laughs> exactly it's going to be a good one now one of the things you've written about before and you're passionate about in general is the concept of life-centered product development as opposed to user-centered product development mm-hmm now, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of UX researchers out there now spitting out their coffee at the thought of not looking directly at users for a minute. But <laughs> what exactly is life-centered product development and why is it so important to you? Yeah, I think what I mean with life-centered product development is probably what other people call sustainable product development or maybe ethical product development. And what I mean is that you do not only consider your users when you develop a product, but you also consider the people who build the product, the people who are affected by other people using the product, so basically the, the society and the whole environment, so also non-human beings when developing products. And that also means that you consider not only the time of your product being used, but also, yeah, the, the production time and the afterlife of a product. And I think it matters or it's important that companies move towards this direction because I think this pure focus on the user caused a lot of pain led to kind of the, the ecological crisis that we're in right now, I guess, partly. And yeah, I think now now is the time to think about, okay, if I'm developing a product, what is happening if the product is not used anymore for hardware products? That plays a big role. But I think for software as well, like if, if you store a ton of data for a customer and then they stop using the product, but you continue to store it, you need energy to store this data. So I think it's important that people start considering all these cases and because I think also our kind of customers and users are becoming more and more aware of these factors and favoring brands and products that really advocate for minimal harm uh, to society and the planet. So I think now is the time that we move away from this yeah, pure focus, this addiction almost to kind of look at the user <laughs> and kind of yeah, widen up our view. But it's interesting, actually, because you said yourself there that users themselves are kind of getting a bit more aware of this and maybe they're themselves thinking about the impact of the things that they're buying the things that they're using and in a way it almost feels like you could spin this that it's still focused on the user as long as the user cares about that i guess yeah but obviously some users don't care about that so what do you do about them yeah that that's a great question i think as a company you can maybe Push your users towards this direction, <laughs> educate them. Oh, the benevolent dictator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I think as a company, you have a lot of responsibility. And you can, I think th there are companies who showed, like Patagonia, for example. I mean, this is not a digital company, but yeah. there are these companies that clearly take a stand on something. And then suddenly, I think now a lot of people are wearing Patagonia clothes who don't care too much uh, about the environment but they turn it into a really strong brand so i think maybe start with those users who believe in uh, in life-centered <laughs> sustainable ethical product development and then yeah build a strong brand build a strong product and then uh, kind of branch out 
No, absolutely. But when I think about customer centricity, I mean, the classic example is always Amazon, you know, and Jeff Bezos and his mm-hmm. customer first everything. And, you know, they could even email him directly and he'd go and stand behind someone until that problem was solved. So putting the customer at the heart of everything. And it's not hard to argue that, for example, with Amazon, that that comes at the expense or can come at the expense of, say, the environment in the sense that, like, if someone's getting their things delivered in four hours or something like that, you know, there's a kind of a rush on for that. And it's not necessarily going to be delivered in the most sustainable way. We've all seen the packaging. We've all seen the stories as well around things like employees that are being monitored for their toilet breaks and being kind of pushed to the limit. And I think even some suicides at certain points, like, is it possible, in your opinion, for a company that is, quote unquote, customer obsessed to be customer obsessed, without basically breaking everything else? as in their employees and the planet? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think with Amazon, yeah, it's, it's, it's always hard to say kind of retrospectively <laughs> if they would have done it differently, would they be uh, similarly uh, successful or not? I guess it might slow you down a little bit, but I think, I think about it as a kind of long-term game because I feel, yes, now they became very successful, but now kind of the, the voices are also rising where people say like, no, I'm, I'm not ordering from Amazon anymore. Yeah. I, I live in Berlin. This is a very kind of left city in terms of the people living here. And here's more and more people say like, no, I would never order uh, from Amazon. I think this pure customer focus can then kind of turn into something where at some point people yeah, avoid using your product because it costs so much harm. So I'm convinced that in the long run, it definitely is the better strategy. In the short run, yes, maybe you you are faster. You get more people on board if you're not life-centered, if you purely focus on on the users. But I think there's also, from a government perspective, so that there will at some point then come the restrictions uh, in certain ways. And yeah, we, we see that with Amazon. We see that now yeah. with all these delivery companies. Yeah, in Germany, I'm sure you have them in the UK as well with gorillas and all that, that they start out, they exploit their employees yeah. and then kind of at some point politics realizes, okay, we need to do something about it. And then they're basically forced more and more to become life-centered. So why not doing it right from the start? So people are going to have to get used to waiting a little bit longer for their packages or paying a little bit more for their food is the long and short of it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and I think there's also kind of technological solutions for things like with Amazon or kind of Zappos, Zalando is kind of a big online uh, clothing storage in Germany where they... Yeah, for them, it was also kind of customer first. You can order as much as you want and you can send everything back at no cost. And that led to people kind of ordering crazy amounts of clothing and then sending it back. Obviously, it had a huge uh, ecological footprint. And I think now they realized, okay, we need to change something about it. They got very bad uh, press. And now they're, <laughs> yeah, they're working with these fitting companies, developing kind of software that helps you find the right size. So. I think it is this thing where there are solutions and that there are more and more technical solutions. And maybe, yes, it takes a little longer. It, it requires you to think a little bit around the corner, but I, uh, I guess it's worth doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but are there any frameworks or approaches that you take then or that you recommend to 
try and put this into the heart of your product design, product development process? Like, it's all very well saying that these are good ideas, and we can all agree, or we at least can both agree that that, or that these are good ideas. But how do you turn that into action when you're thinking about your next company or your next product or your next feature that you're delivering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the the way how I always think about it is how do, can you consider all stakeholders? And with stakeholders, I don't mean kind of the, the internal ones only, but really this kind of environment, society, users, um, producers. How can you consider all user groups and how can you consider all product life stages? This is a bit like the, the mental model that I usually have in mind. And then in terms of considering stakeholders, I think it's always helpful to, if you do kind of a, a journey map, yeah, think about, okay, so the impact on the, the user in this step, the impact on the environment, on uh, society, yeah, go a little broader in that respect. This is something I guess that helps. And then maybe, rephrase your considerations if you think about a product needs to be desirable feasible viable when you think about desirable then maybe ask the question which user need can we fulfill with the solution and where should we maybe make a trade-off in terms of convenience ease of use or efficiency which does not undermine the contradicting need of any other stakeholder or I don't know, in terms of feasibility, you can ask, how can we build the solution with minimum harm to the environment and without exploiting any service providers or suppliers in the process? Yeah. And with viability, you can ask, how can we turn this into a solution that is profitable for our business, even if we consider all the external costs? So this is something that usually helps me a lot. Then in in terms of user groups, I think this is something where you especially kind of now founding a startup, you tend to only think about the people that you want to target right now, but then kind of taking the next step and thinking, okay, who could misuse a product Yeah, is always kind of a, a helpful question to ask because I think no company sets out to build something that is kind of misused. I don't know, YouTube definitely didn't want any, <laughs> um, <laughs> any of kind of these super harmful videos to be on their platform but they also they didn't consider that from the start that obviously it could be used in that way and therefore they didn't set anything in place to kind of restrict the the platform in that sense so i think yeah yeah that is something that one could do and then in terms of considering all product life stages there is this concept of circular economy um as compared to linear economy where you really think about okay how do we make sure that the, the the resources we take are somehow kind of reused at a later stage again? And it's not kind of this throwaway linear process where you take something, you build something, and if the product isn't used anymore, it just goes nowhere. And yeah, I guess there, there are kind of thousands of, of good resources on how to kind of consider um, or kind of implement, integrate the circular economy concept into your development process. Yeah, it feels like a lot of it is also down to the fact that people want to be really optimistic about the things that they're building and they don't want to think about the bad things that could happen or the bad results that they could have. So this is where you kind of get that concept of like, I mean, it's not quite the same, but like writing pre-mortems and stuff. Yeah. to try and work out like how things went wrong like they obviously didn't go wrong yet but like at least try and get yourself in that headspace that things did go wrong yeah before they go wrong because otherwise everyone's just sitting there 
like you say, YouTube, it should be obvious to anyone that's ever been online that there's going to be a lot of hate videos and horrible other stuff on there and, and the same with social media and all these other things. And it's obvious, obviously, now in hindsight, but yeah, if you think about it, it's kind of obvious anyway, right? So yeah, at least trying to put that safety net in in the first place and or at least acknowledging it or like with a penetration test sitting there and saying, well, we accept the risk or whatever else, but it's just, yeah, I don't think there should be any excuses for people not at least trying to think around a little bit more holistically. Yeah, totally. And I, I think what you just said, that, uh, that that's a good idea to to write a post-mortem and think of, yeah, because usually you just write them in the way like, this is the ideal way when we're super successful. <laughs> this is how the world is going to look like if everything goes well. Yeah. And then, yeah, maybe take a step to the left and say like, okay, now we write it in a way if things are not going the way how um, how we desire. Yeah. Um, that's a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to share it with anyone if you know, if you don't like this, don't. <laughs> exactly. You shouldn't read it to investors. But <laughs> <laughs> now, another thing that you wrote about fairly recently, and I know that you're keen to talk about, and it's kind of a, a hot topic for you at the moment, is the concept of collaborative product discovery. Now, obviously, product discovery itself is a hot topic at the moment. It's something there's a lot of books come out about. There's a lot of articles, blog posts, videos. Everyone's talking about it these days. Everyone's talking about the benefits of speaking to customers, and obviously. Hopefully that doesn't clash with the customer obsession versus life obsession thing. But what do you specifically mean by collaborative product discovery? Yeah, with collaboration, I mean that a multi-skilled cross-functional team is somehow working together synchronously or in a somehow coordinated manner to complete a task in support of a shared objective. And I think it's often confused or kind of mistaken with cooperation where single group members are assigned a portion of the problem and support each other to somehow achieve their individual sub-goal. And I think cooperation is usually a lot easier. You just kind of divide and conquer. <laughs> Pass back and forth, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Little mini waterfalls. Uh, exactly. That, that's what I uh, just wanted to say. But I think it doesn't really work in terms of discovery. There was this time uh, in the good old uh, waterfall days where there was this business person kind of defining a problem, handing it over to a designer, then the designer developed a solution and then handed it over to an engineer. And I guess that might seem more efficient at the beginning. You probably don't have um, all these long discussions that you now have in, in the agile cross, uh, cross-functional <laughs> collaborative world. But you also, yeah, you discover all these problems too late, information get lost, and you don't have this chance to kind of counter correct when you figure out while working on the solution, oh, this is actually, the, we didn't really phrase the problem correctly. Yeah. Then it's hard to get back. So I think this, this was the reason Well, then kind of a lot of people moved to Agile, which is all about kind of collaboration in, in cross-functional teams. But I feel that yeah, while while everyone tries to work collaboratively, it is super, super hard to get it right. And therefore, it is something that should get a bit more attention. But when we're talking about getting people together, and we're just talking about that kind of classic product trio of product managers and designers and engineers, or are we talking about an even wider group than that and getting people from all around the company involved? Like, who should be involved in that collaboration? Yeah, that's a good question. I think yeah, first and f- foremost, it should be this product trio driving all discovery decisions, kind of being the ones who, who do like everything in terms of discovery and take the most important decisions. 
but I think this trio should make sure that they involve the rest of the product development team or squad into it, making sure that kind of engineers also have the chance to kind of add ideas, kind of point out problems in the product. But yeah, of course, stakeholders um, across the company play a huge role as well, and definitely customers. And I think this is also something where it's about, yeah, really thinking about co-creation with customers and not just, yeah, here and there doing a usability test. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was thinking, actually, as you were talking about stakeholders, the idea that in B2B land, like where I am, there's always going to be a bunch of other people talking to customers and talking to users all the time. There's going to be customer success teams, there's going to be sales teams, there's going to be account managers, there's going to be loads of other people having those touch points. Now, they're not traditionally in the product trio, but I guess we still want to get some of their feedback into the process as well. So like, have you got any hints and tips on, on how to do that? Like how to make sure that you're getting just the right amount of feedback back from those people? And I guess crucially that you don't just end up in a feature factory situation where you're just working on all, all of the stuff that they say in order, like and actually making that a proper input to discovery. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that there's different ways of how to in, include them. At Zyga, we just two weeks ago ran a discovery or design sprint. And there we had three people from our like operations team. So the people, the, the, the assistants who actually do the work for our the customers. Yeah, exactly. The wizards. We had them involved because we wanted to make sure that whatever we um, come up with is really something where they say like, oh, yeah, we, we really see that in our day to day work. This is a problem. This is a valuable solution. And that's sometimes, yeah, not super easy. They had never done a design sprint before. Some of the methods are kind of something that. Yeah are unfamiliar with them but yeah making sure you yeah you explain it you help them kind of think more in terms of problems and not solutions and then it's super helpful to to have them there but of course then you also need to set up ways to continuously involve them like in in our case we sit down as a yeah product development team once a week with two of these assistants and just openly yeah interview them about the, the problems they have and yeah this helps a lot we try to shadow them not only sit there and yeah <laughs> and listen kind of secondhand um what they they say about the customers but yeah do do some of the tasks ourselves for our customers i guess this is something that helps a lot and yeah g giving them um a lot of easy channels to give feedback, just kind of a Slack channel, making the hurdle as low as possible to send over information. I think it's so easy to say like, okay, if you have a great idea about a feature, then here is this form that you have to fill out, <laughs> like describe the problem, describe why it matters. And I think this is the work that product teams need to do and your stakeholders, they should just kind of provide the raw data, let's say. <laughs> and not have to to learn how to do product development actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah they've got jobs already but this collaboration all sounds wonderful and obviously completely agree with it but there's also a lot of research around the communication overload that could be introduced when you start to get bigger and bigger teams this year where you get the two pizza team kind of concept and all of those different ways that people talk about for example the more people you add to the team you're kind of exponentially increasing the number of lines of communication and the complexity of the group and all of that stuff. And some people 
in maybe less discovery-oriented organizations already think that discovery sounds like something that takes a little bit too long like because they just want to build some stuff. So doesn't adding all these extra people just make it take even longer? Yes. <laughs> I think it does. Um, <laughs> and how do we get these people to not complain about that? <laughs> yeah, I think... I guess it leads to longer processes and maybe less features, but the right features um, eventually yep. that really solve a problem. I think this is always the, the the difficult thing that you then need to explain kind of to the people that want to speed things up to say like, yeah, of course, we can kind of develop these five things super quickly and do not talk to our assistants before and to some more users before. But then we're not reducing the risk of building the um, the wrong thing. And therefore, I, I think it's about finding the balance of, of course, you, you shouldn't kind of slow things down too much. I, I believe there's also this risk in discovery that you talk to yeah, too many people and you go back and forth. And I think it's helpful to kind of think about it. Yes, it'll take longer, but we also need to time box ourselves because otherwise... Yeah, it's easy to get lost uh, in this process of constantly <laughs> counter-correcting. And yeah, obviously, um, designers often really, really want to get it right and get to the kind of perfect solution. And I think it's often the role of the product manager to say, okay, guys, yes, of course, we could now take three more turns, but at some point we need to get something out. So how about we time box and we set our deadline for Friday next week? We should have something there. And then work iteratively afterwards to kind of correct yeah. it and get it better. Absolutely. But it's fair to say that not everyone is getting to do as much product discovery as they might want. Like That's not an uncommon thing that you see around the internet and all over the place. And maybe some aren't getting to do any at all. They're not even being allowed to talk to customers. So if people are in a situation like that, what advice would you have to kind of get that discovery flywheel going if it's not even spinning or barely spinning at all? Are there any kind of top tips from your end as to how people might get going? I think what is helpful in, in these situations is trying not to kind of set up the perfect discovery process where you go into kind of each and every step into a lot of detail because that might be overwhelming if like certain people like your manager doesn't really believe in discovery. And then you say, yeah, but now I have to do kind of three weeks of this work to kind of get the concept right. Like start small, start with kind of, uh, yeah, so, some smaller things, maybe interview one customer at first to kind of validate a problem. And yeah, do do one experiment for a solution you have. I think this is something that helps. And then maybe kind of get your your managers or those people that don't give you the time to do discovery, get them into the process and show them. Because I think this is something that I uh, experienced um, experienced quite often. When you constantly kind of have this manager who says, like, oh, I have this great idea. Can we do this? Um, and then kind <laughs> of get this person in a room and say, like, okay, cool. Let's Let's try to understand the problem and brainstorm solutions and then have this person see, oh, there are five uh, solutions and actually mine is okay, but there's one that seems even better. I think this can really be this aha moment. Yeah, where people realize, okay, that there is maybe uh, it's worth to to do more discovery. And then I think that 
The other thing is that why don't you have the time to do discovery? Because this is what I constantly hear from product <laughs> managers, from designers. I think it's often because then delivery is maybe not running smooth enough. And it's about sitting down with the team and also seeing like, okay, how can we make sure that all the delivery work doesn't take too much time off the lead engineer, the, the product manager, the designer, so the people that are usually part of this product trio. How can the team become a little more self-organized? How can, I don't know, how can you build up a design system? So kind of getting a concept, like finalizing it to get it uh, development ready um, is, is much faster than yeah, always yeah. Like starting from scratch. So, so sitting down, talking about that to kind of free up some of the time that is usually getting lost in delivery. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on more recently is that whole delivery focused product management and not even the fact that it's a feature factory, but just the kind of constant need to be involved in the creation of the software and kind of marshalling people and moving people along and kind of being almost like a project manager in those small cycles, I think it's, you know, like you say, getting back to that self-organizing teams and getting people to actually do that as a group rather than it all falling on the product manager. I think that's absolutely crucial. Yeah. And maybe also thinking about kind of having roles in the companies that support that. Um, so in the first startup I was working for, we, yeah, we were developing hardware and kind of two different sets of software. And then we introduced the role of a program manager who really helped with kind of all this release management, making sure, okay, we're releasing this software. Is it compatible with the hardware and all these things? And I think, yeah, before that, that was always kind of something that the PMs had to do on the side. Yeah. So yeah, how, how can you make sure that, yeah, you, you free up the team that should get enough time for discovery by maybe introducing those roles or product operations or something like that? Oh, let's not get into a process people debate at this part <laughs> of this part of the interview. But no, I think that's actually a really valid point. Like, if you do need people to do certain things, then get people to do those things. Yeah. Like I've I've seen too often product managers be the kind of safety net. They're just kind of there to just cover the things that no one else is doing. Yeah. No one else wants to do. It's like, well, that's cool and all, but again, if you're going to hire product managers, you probably want them to be doing some product management, right? Yeah. <laughs> and where can people find you after this if they want to find out about life-centered design or collaborative discovery or maybe even try and shoot some hoops with you? I'm on Medium. Um, yeah, I'm writing a blog on Medium. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I guess this is always the first um, kind of location <laughs> to um, or the best channel to reach out to me. Yeah, these two things, I guess. Well, we'll get you on Twitter soon. <laughs> Yeah, I, I should get there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll make sure to get that in the show notes and hopefully you'll get a few people heading your direction. I'll also make sure to link in the articles that you've posted about collaborative discovery and life-centered design so people can have a little read of those as well. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really happy we finally managed to make it happen. It's been a long time coming this one, but we got it over the line. Uh, obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. That was fun. Have a great day. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com 
check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the Maybe Missed or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.